Hey, good to see you all this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take it and open to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 this morning, Matthew chapter 21. While you're turning there, I want to invite you to come back this afternoon at 4 p.m. into this room. You have the opportunity to participate in something very special tonight, and that is to take a step into the next chapter of our life as a church. You're going to have the chance to vote on something uh, that is very exciting for our future, and that has to do with how we develop some of the resources that the Lord has entrusted to us as a church family. I shared with you last week about what I'm calling the Oasis Project, which is a three-phase plan to develop some of the resources on our land and our counseling center in order to serve people who need it. And so phase one involves the construction of a building for our Hope Road Counseling Center. Phase two involves the construction of several cabins where we can host pastors and missionaries and others who may just need respite and rest and encouragement and refreshing. Phase three, longer term, we actually don't even have any kind of plans for this yet, but just longer term, a a chapel and conference center. Um, Listen, none of that is for us. Uh, That is seeking to inside out our blessing and take what the Lord has entrusted to us to serve other people, to be a place where we can host church groups and create a really a retreat kind of environment for people to to be refreshed. And so we're going to ask you tonight to vote to affirm that vision, that direction, and then to take a couple of specific votes to take the first few steps towards that vision. And so we'll be voting tonight uh, about the Hope Road building. We'll be voting tonight about the, uh, the cabins and hope that you will, will come tonight and embrace this vision. This is something that we want to do not as a capital campaign. We, we are debt-free as a church. We want to remain debt-free as a church. We just simply want to put this in front of you and invite you to participate, invite you to give. And then as the Lord provides the funding, we want to build so that we can be a spiritual oasis for people. And I want to tell you that that has been met with enthusiasm literally from around the world. This week, we had a, a woman in Dallas, Fort Worth, who watches online, and she wrote a note and said, I want to be part of this. And she wrote a check and sent it to Moberly to, to be part of it. And I heard even this morning, I got a Facebook message at about three o'clock in the morning. I wasn't awake yet, <laughs> but from missionaries in Papua New Guinea who have been watching us online. And the missionary just said, we're about a week behind. We just watched the message from last week. And when you shared about building a place where uh, pastors could come and missionaries could come, he said, our family got up and in the living room, we started dancing around (laughs) because it is such a huge need. And we're so thankful that y'all are doing this. So I wanna invite you to come back tonight and it's gonna be a wonderful afternoon uh, together, amen? All right, hopefully you've had a chance to find your way now to Matthew chapter 21. And we're starting a new short series uh, today leading up to Easter Sunday where we're going to be uh, tracing some of the major events in the life of Christ uh, in what the Christian church is called Passion Week, okay? And so that begins with the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem leading all the way to the cross and then the resurrection. So we'll get to the resurrection on Easter morning. But between now and then, we're going to be walking through some selected texts in Matthew 21 through 28 and just tracing these key events 
that led Jesus on the road to the cross and to the resurrection. And this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 21, what has been called the triumphal entry. This is Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem, ultimately heading to the cross where he will accomplish our redemption. Now, a few years ago, I had the opportunity with Amy and a a, a church group to go to Israel, and uh, I'll never forget uh, coming to the Mount of Olives and overlooking the city of Jerusalem. Some of you have taken this trip and you have sat right there on that photo, where that photo is, from the Mount of Olives, looking across to the Temple Mount. Uh, It was breathtaking. And we had just a special time as we retraced the, the path that Jesus took uh, to the cross. As our church group of about 40 people gathered there on the Mount of Olives, uh, we stopped and we took the Lord's Supper. And it was just a special time of, of worship as we thought about what Jesus was headed to do on the cross, to shed his blood on the cross for our sins. And then our Jewish travel guide was a young man in his 30s, and he did something very special for us. He read the Lord's Prayer in Hebrew, and it just gave us goosebumps, you know, hearing from a 30-something Jewish man reading in Hebrew what the Lord's Prayer would have sounded like. It was an entry into a city unlike any other I have ever experienced. And Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 tells us, of the ultimate entry into the city of Jerusalem, an entry that was unique, an entry where it was not business as usual, an entry that was uh, unlike any other throughout history when Jesus comes with his disciples into the city of Jerusalem. And this morning, I just want to point out uh, three features that make Jesus's entry into the city of Jerusalem uh, unique and what that might mean for our lives uh, today. So let's look at Matthew chapter 21 and verse 1. It says, when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples ahead of him. Okay, now let me just tell you the first thing I want you to notice as we dive into these verses is that Jesus's entry into Jerusalem involved prophetic fulfillment. It involved prophetic Fulfillment. This is no ordinary entrance. Look at verse 2. Jesus sent ahead two disciples and he told them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So the very first thing that Jesus does as the disciples enter into the city is he, he actually prophesies. What's happening here in these first couple of verses is that Jesus is saying something that's about to happen that hasn't happened yet. Now, can you imagine being one of the disciples? Uh, Jesus is telling them, hey, when you go in there, you're going to find a donkey tied up, and you're going to tell the owner that you need it, and he's going to give it to you. Now, that's a pretty risky thing to say. What if it doesn't happen, right? Jesus is prophesying. Now, when you think about Jesus, the Bible tells us that he actually fulfills a threefold office. He is prophet, priest, and king. And here we actually see him embodying the role of prophet. He is saying something that's going to happen before it happens. Well, what happens, right? Because look, if if Jesus 
says that there's a donkey there and the disciples walk in the city and the donkey's not there, guess what? He's a false prophet, right? That's what the Old Testament says. If you prophesy something that doesn't happen, you are a false prophet. Well, look what happens. Look down at verses 6 and 7. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, and then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. So what do we have here? Verses 1 through 3, a prophecy made. Verses 6 and 7, prophecy fulfilled. That makes this entry very unique, doesn't it? In the midst of coming into the city, Jesus makes and fulfills a prophecy. That's amazing. But, but not only is Jesus prophesying here, he is also fulfilling prophecy. Look down in verses 4 and 5. Look down in verse 4. It says, this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Now, in verse 5, the, the gospel writer, Matthew, is going to include a quotation from one of the minor prophets in your Old Testament, Zechariah. And he quotes Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. And just for those of you who are keeping score, Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai. So we've just finished walking through the book of Haggai. Haggai and Zechariah prophesied at the exact same time in the life of Israel. Here we have Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, which says, Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey. Do you see that? On a colt, the foal of a donkey. What's happening right here is that when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem, not only does he make a prophecy and that prophecy comes true, but as he comes into the city, the very act of coming into Jerusalem on a donkey is the fulfillment of a prophecy that was made 550 years prior to the life of Christ, all the way back in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. So what makes this entry into Jerusalem unique? Well, Jesus not only prophesies in this text and it comes true, but he also fulfills prophecy. And by the way, this is not the only prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. Anybody have any idea how many prophecies Jesus fulfilled in his life? Anybody have any idea? Just shout it out to me. Okay, somebody said over 300. That's exactly right. You get a gold star today. Over 300 Old Testament prophecies that were written literally hundreds of years before the life of Christ that Jesus fulfilled. And if you look at those Old Testament prophecies, they are th about things like where Jesus would be born. Um, they are about things like, you remember when Jesus had to flee with his family, family from Bethlehem to, to Egypt, and then he comes back? That was prophesied hundreds of years before. Jesus' betrayal, uh, Jesus' trial, uh, Jesus' suffering, Jesus' death, the manner in which Jesus died, even Jesus' resurrection, all of those and more were prophesied in the Old Testament. And when Jesus comes and you see throughout the Gospels, this was so that what the prophet said would be fulfilled, he repeats, uh, uh, he fulfills prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. By the way, let me just add one more layer to this. Jesus fulfills his own prophecies. 
In Matthew chapter 20, just a few verses prior to our text here, Jesus himself says that he will suffer, he will be killed, and he will be raised on the third day. So those of you who are here today, and maybe you're a skeptic, or maybe you're just checking out this whole Jesus thing, and you're maybe wondering why you should believe, one of the things I would encourage you to think about is the miracle of fulfilled prophecy. It is truly miraculous that all of these prophecies could be fulfilled in one person. And what does that tell us about Jesus? He's free. He's God. Yeah. River says he's God. Yes. He's special, isn't he? You know, I think one of the, uh, I think one of the best jobs that you could ever have in the world is to be a weatherman. And... (laughs) One of the reasons I think that that's one of the best jobs is because you can be wrong all the time and still have a job, all right? Uh, You can predict the weather and it's never going to happen, right, the way you say it, and you'll still keep your job. Growing up in Houston, I'll just tell you, one of my memories is uh, every Christmas day, it didn't matter what the weather was, the weatherman always said that snow was in the forecast, on Christmas Day, it was going to be a white Christmas in Houston. It didn't matter if it was 85 degrees outside, which it was most of the time. There was always going to be snow on Christmas. So Christmas Eve, you know, the kids go to sleep and they're excited to wake up in the morning. There's going to be snow on Christmas. And you know how many times that happened in my life? Zero. Not even one time. Could you imagine being a weatherman, though, who accurately forecasts the weather 100% of the time? I mean, that person would be world-renowned. What if I predicted what the weather would be like one year from today, but I predicted it today, and I got it exactly right? How, how would you respond? What if I... Spooky. <laughs> Somebody said spooky. Okay, what if I did it 10 times? Well, now it's more than spooky. What, what if I did it 100 times? I would argue that some people would be tempted to worship, which is exactly what happens in Matthew 21. But but here's the thing. For Jesus, just think for a second about the statistical probability of Jesus fulfilling all of those prophecies. All right, now, I'm not a math person, so I had to look this one up. And in fact, I ran out of digits. But... For Jesus to fulfill in one person just 48, just 48 prophecies, there is a 1 in 13 trillion chance that one person could fulfill just 48. Jesus fulfilled over 300. And so here we have an example of, of some of those. And I just want to point that to you to say this is a unique entry. This is a prophetic moment as Jesus comes into the city of Israel and It shows us that Jesus is worthy of our worship. He is the fulfillment of all of the prophetic hopes of Israel. And and so exactly what what I just said, that is what happens. People begin to worship him in in this entry into Jerusalem, but they don't do it in the right way. And so I I want you to notice the second thing that makes Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is that there is a political expectation that is surrounding his entry. And I I want you to see what happens as Jesus comes in on the donkey. Look, I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. Verse 7, it says, they bring the donkey and the colt. They lay their clothes on them. He sits on the donkey. And a very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. 
and others were cutting branches from the, from the trees. We know from other gospels, these are palm branches, and they're spreading them out on the road, okay? So this is a big parade for Jesus, and people are throwing palm branches in the road in front of him, and that's not insignificant, okay? And then the crowds who went ahead of him in verse 9 and those who followed, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, okay? And I just underline that. That language is very important. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is, notice the language here. This is the prophet, Jesus. Why, did they, why are they calling him a prophet here? Well, he just prophesied, right? Back up in verses one and two. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. All right, so what's going on here? Why are the people acting this way, right? They're, there's this parade. They are laying out branches in front of this man coming in on a donkey, and they're shouting out, Hosanna, uh, son of David. Well, to understand what's happening here, you need to understand the meaning of the word Hosanna. It means save us, save us. So when the crowd cries out, Hosanna, they're saying, son of David, save us. Now, this is very important. This is not a spiritual statement as the crowds are speaking it. This is a political statement. When they shout out, save us, son of David, they're not meaning like save us from our sins. That's not what they mean. They are meaning to save them from Rome. Because what's happening in the cultural context in the first century is that the empire of Rome was dominating the world. It was occupying Israel. And in Rome, there was a ruler who claimed to be the true king of the world. His name was Caesar. In fact, if you go to the British Museum, you see some of the old Roman coins. You look on the coin, there's a picture of Caesar, and it says, son of God, savior of the world. He claimed to be the true ruler of the universe. And the Romans were dominating the Israelites. Meanwhile, the Israelites had their own nationalistic hopes. They expected that there would be a Messiah who would come, who would drive out their enemies, establish the kingdom, and reign on the throne in Jerusalem. And it would be a political and military kingdom. And by the way, throughout Israel's history, there were a number of would-be messiahs that uh, would pop up throughout history. One of them, who's very well-known, came in 164 AD. His name was Judas uh, Maccabeus, also called Judah the Hammer, which sounds awesome. <laughs> and Judas Maccabeus, in 164 AD, comes into Jerusalem, claims to be the messiah, the Syrians were occupying Jerusalem at the time. Judas drives out the Syrians. He goes into the temple, cleanses the temple, and comes out. And to celebrate his military victory, the people are shouting out in the streets, and they are waving palm branches. Nearly 200 years later, on another day, here comes someone marching into Jerusalem on a donkey, and people are saying, save us, son of David. And the expectation here is that Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem with a sword and drive out their enemies. Even the language that's used here suggests that. For instance, in verse 5, 
This quotation from Zechariah 9.9, right? Your king is coming to you on a donkey. If you look back at Zechariah chapter 9, the context of Zechariah 9 is of Israel's enemies being overthrown. When you look at verse 9, where the people are shouting, Hosanna, son of David. Son of David, has, there's a lot of meaning packed into that. That comes from 2 Samuel 7, where God promises King David that one of his descendants will reign on the throne of Israel forever and his house will be established. So when Israel is shouting out to Jesus, save us, deliver us, rescue us, son of David, what they're really saying is, Save us from Rome. Save us from our enemies. Drive out our enemies and establish your rule as the son of David. This has political overtones. This is the ancient equivalent of saying, make Israel great again. That's what's happening here. Kick out, drain the swamp. (laughs) Kick the Romans out. Establish your rule and your reign. Save us from our enemies. Of course, that's not what Jesus came to do, at least not in that way. And Jesus had been repeatedly telling people that. In fact, just a few verses earlier, predicting his death, he says, I'm coming. And he, listen, folks, he was coming to establish the kingdom, but the kingdom wouldn't be established with the sword. It would be established through suffering. He he wouldn't inaugurate the kingdom of God with a sword. He would inaugurate it with a cross. And three different times prior to Matthew 21, three times in Matthew's gospel, he says, the son of man is going to suffer and be killed. The reality was Jesus did come to establish the rule and the reign of God, just not the way that the people expected or wanted. They wanted a political kingdom. Jesus came to deliver them, not from the Romans, but from their sin. Jesus did come to save them. They thought it would be political salvation. In fact, Jesus came to save them from their sins. And his kingdom would look very, very different. His kingdom would bring rescue. His kingdom would bring deliverance. His kingdom would be like the Old Testament exodus, but it wouldn't be deliverance from Egypt or deliverance from Rome. It would be deliverance from the kingdom of darkness. Jesus came to fight and win a much bigger battle than any kind of earthly political squabble. Jesus came not just to overthrow the Egyptians or the Romans. He came to overthrow the kingdom of darkness and inaugurate the kingdom of God through the cross and the resurrection. And even the fact that he's coming in on a donkey signifies that Jesus' kingdom would not look like the kingdoms of this world. He doesn't come in on a war horse. He doesn't come riding a tank. He comes on a donkey. That's not very majestic, is it? We drove in Tyler yesterday. We drove by some donkeys, and I just thought, that's a pretty pitiful-looking animal. (laughs) What kind of kingdom is this, Jesus? A donkey? Really? I mean, couldn't you get like a, you know, Amy, help me with some breeds here, like a Tennessee walker or a Kentucky racer, or that's not a real thing, I don't think. Hey, you would, if you were going to establish an earthly kingdom, right, you would do something very impressive. Not Jesus. I mean, 
And this is true about his whole life and ministry. He doesn't, he's not born in a palace. He's born in a manger. This is a different kind of kingdom. It's, it's lowly, it's humble. And Jesus would inaugurate the kingdom of God in a way that was upside down and backwards. And the crowds had no interest in this whatsoever. They did not care about what Jesus came to do. They wanted political power. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Because within just a few short days, they go from shouting, Hosanna, son of David, which is his like political slogan, to crucify him. Have you ever wondered why they moved from those two positions that quickly? To go from, save us, son of David, make Israel great again, to crucify him. The reason is, is because he wasn't bringing the kingdom they wanted. They were looking for hope from that which cannot give hope. They were looking for hope in their agenda being advanced. It was a political agenda. By the way, we do the same thing. We look for hope from things that cannot give us hope. And sometimes that looks like looking to a career, and, and we think if we just advance in our career, it will bring us what we're looking for, or, or we put that hope in relationships. If I just get that man, that woman, that family that I want, then it will give me what I'm looking for. We look for it in substances, and we just think if I can just have more of that substance, it will give me what I want. Sometimes we even look for it in politics. If we just elect the right person, then right, the, it's like the kingdom's come. It, it, everything will be okay. Just curious, let me just take a quick poll. How many of you in the course of your lifetime have heard this phrase around October or November? This is the most important election of our lifetime. <laughs> Anybody ever heard that one? Look around the room, everybody, right? It's like, okay, until two years from now, right? And then and this, is, this is the most important election. You see what we're doing when we say that kind of thing? We're saying this is where our hopes are riding. We better get the candidate we want or else, you know, things are going to get really, really bad, and, you know, the world's going to go to hell, and all these types of things. Listen, our hope is not found in human agendas. And let me just tell you, listen, is it important to vote in elections? Absolutely. We are called to be good neighbors and good citizens. That's part of what it means to be a follower of Christ in this world. But that is not where our hope lies. And that should be good news for you that no matter who happens to occupy the White House, we know who occupies the throne. And it doesn't matter if there is a, it, it doesn't matter if there is a donkey or an elephant because we have the lion and the lamb. And Jesus came to establish his kingdom but it wouldn't be a kingdom that looks like an earthly kingdom. And he did come to reign, but he didn't come to advance any human agenda. Here, here the crowd expects Jesus to go to the Roman garrison and clean house, pull out a sword, drive out our enemies, establish your kingdom. But he was after something totally different. And that's what I want you to see next in the text. It's the last feature of this text that makes it very unique. Instead of a political deliverance, instead they get they get a spiritual inspection. And that's the third unique aspect of this entry into Jerusalem, a spiritual inspection. Instead of going into the Roman garrison and driving out the Romans, 
Jesus goes into the heart of Jewish life. He goes into the temple and he inspects their worship and he finds it lacking. Look at what happens in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, it says, Jesus went into the temple and threw out all of those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called, what does it say there? A house of prayer, but instead you are making it into what? A den of thieves. Now notice what's happening right here. The people say, we need a political solution. Our nation needs cleansing. Go clean house. And Jesus says, no, it's you that need cleansing. I'm going to my house. It's, it's you, my people, who need spiritual reformation and spiritual repentance. You see, the problem is not with Rome. The problem is with God's people. And what's happening in Matthew chapter 21 is Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. He is establishing his rule and reign. Zion's king was coming, but he wasn't coming to advance a political agenda. He was coming to form a holy people. And as he walks into the heart of Jewish life and he looks around in the temple, he finds the worship of his people lacking. You know, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17 says that judgment begins, listen, judgment begins with the house of God. It's, it's very common for us to talk about our country needing revival. And a lot of times, unfortunately, we tend to associate that with a particular candidate getting elected. But folks, it is our churches that need revival. And I would contend that Jesus is more interested in what is happening with his people located at 625 East Loop 281 than he is what's happening at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Are we more grieved by what plagues our country or what plagues our churches? Jesus says the problem isn't Rome. The problem is what is happening at the heart of my people. What grieves God today is not necessarily what is happening with your pagan neighbor. It's what's happening with his people. It's what's happening in his churches. It's his churches that need revival. And so Jesus here walks into the temple and he says, I'm coming to my house. I'm going to inspect what's happening at my house. And he finds that their worship is lacking. Notice, first of all, that they had a lack of prayer. That's the first thing that Jesus points out here in verse 13. He says, I've come to my house. I'm inspecting my people spiritually. And the first thing that he found was that there was a lack of prayer. He says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. Instead, it has become what? A den of thieves. Well, what does that mean? He comes in, you know, he drives out the money changers. What exactly was happening? Well, here's, here's a good way to think about it. Uh, if you were a Jewish person in the first century and you would go up to Jerusalem, you'd go to the temple and you would offer a sacrifice for worship, you would have to buy an animal. To purchase an animal for a sacrifice, you were not allowed to use Roman money because it's pagan, right? It's unclean. So you would have to exchange your money. You, you turn in your Roman money and you get temple coins. 
um, what, what was happening, if, you, if you've ever been to a, an airport in an international country, you have to, you know, you have to have the uh, currency exchange. Anybody ever had to do that? You know, you should never change your money out in the airport. Why? They'll upcharge you. That's right. Yeah, if you go and change your money, they're going to they're gonna charge you a ridiculous amount to do that. Well, that is exactly what was happening in the temple. People were coming and they were exchanging their Roman money for temple coins, and these money changers were charging them extra and pocketing it. And so Jesus walks into his house, expecting to find a house of prayer. Instead, it has become a house of currency. It has been a place where people take advantage of other people and pocket the extra. And, you know, I wonder if Jesus came to our churches today, would he say, this is a house of prayer? Uh, Jim Simbla, who pastors at the Brooklyn Tabernacle, he said, our, our churches could be called houses of preaching, houses of singing, houses of ministry, but could they be called houses of prayer? And I'm for singing and I'm for ministry and I'm obviously for preaching. But thank you, appreciate that. Um, but could we also be called a house of prayer? The problem is not Rome. The problem is God's people prayerless. Just a few verses later, Jesus talks about the importance of prayer. In verses 21 and 22, he, he curses a fig tree later on the story. We'll look at it in a second. And the disciples are amazed. And Jesus says, you could do this too if you understood the power of prayer. And that's not because of the power of your faith, but the power of the object of your faith. It's the power of the one to whom you pray. And if we understood the power of prayer, we would pray more. Amen? So Jesus walks in. He says, I I'm expecting for this to be a place where you call out to God to see what he can give. And all you care about is what people can give. And this money changing. Not only was there a lack of prayer, there was a lack of praise. Down to verses 14 through 17. The blind and the lame begin to come to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. Uh, but when the chief priests and the, the scribes, <clears throat> when they saw the wonders that he did and they watched the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, right? Which we would all look at this and say, this is something to cheer and celebrate, right? Blind people, lame people coming to Jesus. He's performing these miracles. He's healing them. You have all of these children that are gathered around and they're, they're shouting out to Jesus and they're worshiping. And you can always know when Jesus is celebrated. And this is the kind of scene we would look at and say, this is exactly what should be happening. People being healed by Jesus, being celebrated by Jesus. And, but what are, the, what are the religious leaders of the day doing? Look what, it's, what, what it says right here in verse 16. When they see all of this happening, they became indignant. Some of you have a translation that says jealous because Jesus is getting the attention. And the worship is a little bit rowdy. Like there's kids in here and they're making noise. You know, that's not in the bulletin. <laughs> the children get it. Of course they do. They understand what this is all about. It's the religious leaders who instead of joining in the chorus of praise and getting rowdy with the kids and celebrating Jesus, they're sitting there instead of 
focusing on the object of worship, they're focusing on the worshiper. And they're jealous and they're indignant. And Jesus walks into this and he looks and says, there is a lack of praise. The problem isn't Rome. This is the problem. And then finally, there was a lack of fruit. A lack of fruit. Look what happens in verses 18 and 19. Matthew tells another story that he puts together with the temple story. You got the cleansing of the temple. And then there's a weird story. I actually like this story a lot uh, because it tells us about the humanity of Jesus. Look in verses 18 and 19. It says, early in the morning as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. So Jesus loved to eat. Can I get a witness? Loved to eat. Here he is. He's hungry. He's hungry. Okay. And so he sees in verse 19, a lone fig tree. Now that's not exactly my jam, but Jesus loved a good fig, okay? And so he sees this lone fig tree. And you expect, when you come to a fig tree, you expect to find, very good. You expect to find figs. So he's hungry. Ah, here is a fig tree. You expect to find figs. And it, and, but look, he found nothing on it except leaves. And I love this, his reaction. It's kind of like when you drive up to Chick-fil-A on a Sunday. <laughs> He's like, I had a hankering for fig, and there's no figs on this tree. So what does he do? May no fruit ever come from it again. And at once the fig tree withered. He just cursed the fig tree. <laughs> May you never grow figs again. It just withers. That's a really interesting story. I just love that Matthew includes it. But why? Why is it here? It was not just to teach us about Jesus' hunger and a fig tree. No, the fig tree is a metaphor for the temple. It's a commentary on the temple. There's a reason that Matthew puts cleansing of the temple and cursing the fig tree back to back. It's because if you want to understand what's happening in the temple, you have to see what's happening with the fig tree. Jesus comes to something looking and expecting for it to be fruitful, and it's not. And because it's not bearing the fruit it should be bearing, he curses it. That's what Jesus does with the temple. He comes not to drive out Rome. He comes to his people. He comes to his house expecting for his people to be bearing fruit. And instead, they are barren. And so, folks, the problem isn't Rome. Jesus, here's the, here's the deal. Here's the the big idea of this story. It is that Jesus came in fulfillment of prophecy to rule. That is what the story is about. But how does he rule? Not by advancing any kind of human agenda, but by forming a holy people. So what does it look like for Jesus to rule and reign? It doesn't look like some kind of advancement of a political agenda. It looks like Jesus to co coming to form a holy people. That is what Jesus is after. Jesus came not to drive out the Romans. He came to make us look like himself. Amen. He came to cleanse and purify a people. He came to form a people that was holy, which is really good news. It means that Jesus loves you so much that he's not going to stop working on you until you look just like him. Because what it looks like for Jesus to rule and to reign is for Jesus to rule and to reign in my life, 
in your life, in our life together. That's what the temple entry is all about. Jesus coming to form a holy people. Jesus taking over really looks like Jesus being the center. We've been talking about that a lot over the last few months. Tony Evans says, Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. And so what does the kingdom of God mean? It means we submit our agendas to his agenda. It means we lay aside any human agenda and we say, God, your your agenda is my holiness. That's what I want. I'm not satisfied with anything less than your agenda. And your agenda is making me holy and purifying and cleansing me as part of your people. I I watched an artist this week uh, form uh, a mold of someone's hand. And it was really interesting. I don't, I'm not an artist, so I don't have the lingo, the, the words to use to describe what was happening. I can just tell you what I saw. And what I saw was someone uh, who had uh, this material that was poured over a human hand. And it, it began to be formed and shaped to look just like the human hand as it was poured over. And then as that material began to, to take shape and to harden, eventually the person whose hand was being formed began to pull their hand out of the mold so that all that was left was the art. And as I watched that, I thought, that is a picture of what Jesus wants to do with us. He wants to form us and shape us into greater Christ-likeness, greater holiness, and eventually there is going to be less and less of us And all that is left is something that looks just like him. And that's what he wants for your life. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to invite you to bow with me. And I just want to say, is there anything in your life today, if you're a follower of Jesus, if Jesus came and inspected our worship today, would he find anything lacking? Would he find a lack of prayer, a lack of praise, a lack of fruit? Or would he see a people that is holy. That's his desire for us, is to make us like himself. And so if there's anything in you that you would just say, boy, I need to submit this to him, would you do that today? If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, let me just tell you, Jesus came to rule and to reign, and he establishes his rule and his reign by delivering us from our sin. And so if you're here today and you need deliverance, maybe there's something that is dominating your life, Jesus can deliver you. He can rescue you. And he wants to rule and to reign in your life. And we'd love to talk with you about how to have a relationship with Jesus like that. In fact, as soon as we end today, as you leave this place in the lobby, there are people who are wearing badges and they're decision prayer partners. And they would love to sit down with you for a few moments today to explain how Jesus can be the king of your life. And so as we finish this song, if you would like to know more about Christ, about what it means for him to be Lord, what it means for him to be the center, you can go and talk with somebody. If you're walking, uh, watching online, you can text the word next uh, to the number that you see in your screen. Somebody will be in touch with you today about how to come to know Jesus in that way. Lord, we are so thankful that your kingdom is not like any other earthly kingdom. Forgive us where we try to insert human agendas, political agendas, any kind of other agendas in place of yours. 
Lord, form in us holiness. Form in us Christ-likeness. Take away anything that is not pleasing. Lord, I pray for Moberly that we would be a place that is full of prayer and full of praise and full of fruit. It's not by our power and it's not for our glory. Only possible through your spirit and it is all for your glory. So we ask that you would form that in us. We pray it in Christ's name.